Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And this is Mark Scarborough, and we have a great show on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We've got tips on how to stay fit as a foodie. We've got one-minute cooking tip. We've got a great interview and a whole section <laughs> at the end about what's making us happy in food this week. So we're going to start off with how to stay fit as a foodie. That sounds absolutely ridiculous. Well, it, not really. Look, we are professional eaters. I mean, you know, see all those memes on Facebook, like describe what you do poorly in seven <laughs> words or more. Well, okay, I'm a professional eater. I say worry about the mortgage, but okay. Um, <laughs> it's not what you do for a living, I hope. Uh, it's close to what I do for a living. Uh, yes, anyway, I guess we are professional eaters and we're professional food writers and mostly cookbook writers, but we do eat a lot and there is a lot of food in our There's house. There's always a lot of food in our house and especially when we're working on a new book. Oh. I'll make 15, 20 dishes a day to oh. test them out and see what's going That is a lot of food. It is. And you know what can happen? And this is what happens with professional eaters, but it happens with people who really like food. You get conditioned to excess. And it's very hard to pull out of conditioning for excess. Just to ask, I don't know, uh, Paul Prudhomme. Or... <laughs> you know, it's always a struggle. But we manage to keep our weight out of the morbid obesity territory. Mm. And... A lot of celebrity chefs have talked about this same problem, you know, and they're not just worried about their health, but, you know, they're often required by contract to be a certain weight for TV. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The old Lucille Ball and Vivian Vance. <laughs> what does thing. that mean? Yeah, explain uh, that for uh, people who don't know who Lucille Ball gosh, is. If you're not as old as I am. Okay. Uh, Vivian Vance in her contract on I Love Lucy back in the 50s ha had a clause that said that basically she had to be, I don't remember, X number of pounds heavier than Lucy at all times and Lucille Ball. And uh, they wanted Vivian Vance to be dumpy and a little overweight, whereas Lucy was trim and glamorous. So you that see stuff. that that stuff has been in contracts for a long time, but the mm. other way, now they want them to be thinner. But, you know, even in the food world, I think we're pretty much gone from the days of two fat women and Paul Prudhomme, who you mentioned. Even, I mean, forgive me, Mario Batali. I mean, he was a little rotund. Yeah, I guess we're gone from that. I think that it food has become much more glamorous. Thank you, Giada and others. Mm -hmm. It has become a much more glamorous pursuit. There are glamorous food chefs on all kinds of morning shows and you know what that's going to do that's going to pull in hollywood what's the right word ethics and you're going to aesthetics have to, how about hollywood aesthetics yeah i prefer ethics but okay <laughs> ethics and you're going to have to be thinner so again if you are someone who is into food if you're somebody who likes food if you're somebody who listens to this podcast you probably are that person you can too as we can get conditioned to excess but you know i was reading an article in daily beast that they they interviewed a few chefs a while back and including giada who you mentioned and even Jamie Oliver, right, and they were talking about their struggles with trying to keep their weight down with being professional eaters, and the consensus among all the chefs they talked to, and Mark and I believe this with our true hearts, it is to taste, not gorge. Well, I think that is important to say, but I also wanted to say that I think that that's easier said than done, but let me say this about that. <laughs> While we're on the subject, <laughs> have you ever done this thing where, you know, you get a pie, I don't know, a lemon meringue pie, let's pretend, you get a slice of lemon meringue pie and you think, oh my gosh, this is going to be so good. And so you take a bigger slice than you think you should, which we all do, I do too. Everybody does this thing. And then you get about halfway through it and it's no longer about eating the lemon meringue pie. It's just kind of about finishing it, right? You get really totally, wow, that's fabulous for the first three bites. And then it starts to kind of get repetitive and overdone. 
That's what we mean about taste, not gorge. It's avoiding that bit where you're eating just to be eating. Well, it's true. You know, Mark and I wrote a book a few years ago called Real Food Has Curves. And we really addressed this problem with eating to enjoy food mm. versus just eating to be shoving mm. stuff in your mouth. Mm. Um, what we realized in our research for writing that book is that when you eat rich, full-fat flavored dishes, a little goes a long way to really satisfy. And once you're satisfied, you can actually stop eating. You don't need to keep shoving it in your mouth. And this is this is not, right? This is not, you're right. This is not, uh, what, what do I want to say? This is not being fake about it. This is actually eating food. One should eat food. Yes. And one should enjoy the food one eats. There's an idiot New York Times writer who I shall not <laughs> speak of who wrote a book about how to stay in that little black dress for the rest of your life. And there was actually um, recommendations in the book about how to push food around your plate so that it looked like you had eaten it. That is absolutely absurd. That's an eating disorder. That, I'm sorry, oh, but that that is an eating I disorder. I can't believe this person still even has a job. What an idiot. Anyway, it's not the point. The point is that you should enjoy the food. Remember those first two bites, three bites of lemon meringue pie? It, they're they're fabulous. They're relishing. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Or those first two bites of a hamburger. I've run this often with hamburgers. I think the first bite is fabulous and the second bite, the third bite. And then there comes this kind of weirdness that sets in where it's not the same pleasure. And if there's there's all kinds of, we write about this in Real Food Discourse. There's all kinds of truth about that, about dopamine response and why pleasure lessens over time and all that kind of stuff. Just ask your grandparents about their marriage. Anyway, why <laughs> pleasure lessens over time and what brain chemical makes that happen. But, you know, hey, it's it's all too true. You can often be satisfied with more of less. How do I say that? No, you're saying it right. And so here's the thing. It does take a lot of training to get yourself to do this. But when you pay attention to how you feel when you're eating mm. and you pay attention to when you feel sated mm. and when you've had maximum enjoyment from mm. that slice of cake, it does take training to say, I don't need to eat any more of that cake. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean you have to stop eating. So let's say you're faced with a huge holiday meal and you could do like some of these chefs do we talk about, which is take a bite or two of everything. Yeah, that always seems restrictive to me. But okay, go but on. But that way you can have everything on the table. You're not gorging. And a bite or two of this cookie, a bite or two of that pate will keep you excited about the food. Right. Each first few bites is exciting and wonderful. You'll get a whole meal by eating little bits of everything and you'll never be eating once you're bored with it. You know, and we should also say, and I think it's really important to say here, that you can't fight your genetics. Some people store fat differently than others because of genetic factors. We just finished watching that show Hacks on HBO with Gene Smart which was fabulous. Gene Smart is fabulous. And at the end, they're talking about some diet plan. Do you remember this? In the car with her daughter, and they're talking about their daughter's selling some diet plan, and uh, they both just cackle because they say, well, we're naturally thin, so it's all We BS don't tell everybody anyway. that, right? Right. Okay, I when I uh, when I heard them say that in the car, I gasped out loud because it's the truth. You can't fight your genetics. People are born to store fat differently. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like me and you're good peasant stock, you've store fat much differently than people who were designed for the royal court. But we want to offer you three ways, three things you can do okay. to help maintain your pleasure of eating and to try and not overdo when you don't want to. Okay. The first one is 
Try not to stress eat. Oh, this is the big one for me. I have to confess that I'm a huge stress eater. Um, I just went through a big stress event because my dad just died. And I have to say that I came home and Bruce bought a bunch of ice cream. I bought seven <laughs> quarts of ice cream from a fabulous place near our house. And they, he did. And it was really great to have. And I realized at a certain point that I was stress eating it. I was, I was finishing something I was doing and I was going upstairs and eating like eight spoonfuls of ice cream and then going back downstairs again. That's ridiculous. I eventually, and this is horrid on food waste, I just had to throw it out. I had to throw it out because I was stress eating. Okay, so what do you do if you don't stress eat? Well, if you feel that need, you have to do something, right? Yeah, you do. You have to figure out other dopamine responses, pleasure responses, that will give you just the satisfaction that food does. What you should consider about stress eating, and if you are a stress eater, this is a great um, alternative, is let's say that you really like crackers, uh, and you really do like crackers, and it's a thing. It's a thing with me salty crunchy things are a thing with me so i really do like crackers i've often seen people talk about apportion them out in other words take the box of crackers and buy little plastic bags or wrap them in plastic wrap or i don't know wrap them in little containers or put them in glasses and you put like six in a glass and that's what you get you get your six and it's not that you don't get them it's that you've pre-apportion them out yep. when you get the box home. The problem is, of course, you get the box home and eat half of it and then <laughs> pre-apportion the rest out, but still. And other things you could do, I know not everybody can just get up and move and exercise whenever they want and no, some people don't have the ability, but if you have the ability to go outside and walk around the block or walk around your house or walk to the end of your driveway and yep. back, even small bits of exercise like that do do stimulate dopamine in the brain, which is the same thing that eating does. So I'm right. not saying that that'll make you feel as good as those six spoonfuls right. of ice cream, but it will help. And the other thing is drink a glass of water because Always. every time you're hungry and think, oh, I should get something to eat, drink a glass of water first because often we don't even realize we're thirsty. Well, it's not hunger. It's that thirsty. is true. The problem with stress eating is that it scratches an itch. It you you feel the stress, the anxiety, and so the, you then do this thing that brings pleasure to you. And what Bruce is saying is basically you have to keep doing that. That's the way we work: is we respond to anxiety with an attempt to find pleasure. And so you have to find a different way to find pleasure besides a bag of Fritos. Okay. The second thing that we recommend you do is always sit down when you eat. Yeah, this is really important. And I think counter eating is a real problem. It is a real problem for me. Because again, like I said, I went upstairs and I would, you know, get the ice cream out of the freezer and I'd stand there at the counter and I'd eat it. That's a whole different... You went all the way to the counter. <laughs> That's a you whole didn't different... just eat it out of the freezer. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, that's a whole different thing from actually sitting down uh, and eating it. And if I had dished it up into a bowl and taken it back down to my desk and sat there and eaten it, it would have become much more interesting intentional and i think that that's the point here is that you have to think about the intentionality of what you eat and this is really hard for us when there are 15 dishes being cooked on a single day when we're in the middle of cookbook writing mode well yeah if i've got say six instant pots and five air fryers going at once and i need to taste how they're coming out i'm not necessarily going to make a plate and sit down and taste each one as they're ready so no. working on this is a little different for us but i do I do do the just taste it and don't gorge. And that so, is definitely something I follow. What's the third tip? The third one is you must always indulge once in a while. You have to. There's That's no right. way you can there's no way you can deny yourself 
everything all the time. No, there's no way. And in fact, think about it as trade-offs in terms of indulgences. For example, if you want to drink some wine with dinner, think about drinking wine instead of eating lemon meringue pie. Think of it as just a series of trade-offs. And it works because in the end, you are indulging yourself. And make sure that you understand, tell yourself that this is fabulous. I'm having wine with dinner and yada, yada, yada. You know, make sure that those indulgences actually pay off, that they are indulgences. Here's the problem. Grabbing a Snickers bar, I have nothing against Snickers bars, I actually love them. Grabbing a Snickers bar at a convenience store and eating in the car is not indulging. That's the problem. That's stress eating in most cases. Or sometimes it's just boredom eating, which is a big deal. That's not indulging. That's not actually sitting down and enjoying the candy bar. That's watching out that you don't run into the car in front of you. Now, I'm not saying that you need to sit at the dining table and put the candy bar on a plate with a fork <laughs> and a knife. Oh, I want to. But in you, China. But you, but you need to be more intentional. About Mark's right. Pick it up at the convenience store, but don't tear it open and eat it while you're walking mm. back to the car. Mm. Sit in the car. Don't turn the car back on yet. Mm. Open the candy bar. Mm. Taste it. Look at what's inside mm. of it. Chew it. Really mm. enjoy it. Then go on your way. Yeah, I think that's that. I that's a really important point. It, you know, there's nothing wrong with having that candy bar, and there's nothing wrong with stopping at this convenience store and having that candy bar. The thing that you should do then, as I've said, just to reiterate, don't eat it on the way back to your car. Get in your car and drive someplace that's nice. Drive to a lake, a town park where you can park the car, sit and enjoy your candy bar. Seriously, I'm being very serious. Yeah. That makes it then a nice splurge. It makes it something that's more than just scratching an itch. And that's what you're trying to get away from is just scratching the itch. And so you're trying to get to someplace. I just want to say that if you want to know much more about all this stuff, we did write this book, Real Food Has Curves, which was out, oh gosh, six, eight years ago. I don't know. And it's a it's a point-by-point point plan about how to actually get the processed food out of your life. But it has a lot of these tips and tricks it in it. You Check it out if you want to. Before we get to the next segment, our one-minute cooking tip, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you got your podcasts from and join us, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, on Facebook. We have a Facebook group where we talk about recipes, we share pictures, and we'd love to hear what you're thinking about food. Okay, segment two, our one-minute cooking tip. What's it this week, Mark? Our one-minute cooking tip is all about oil. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Oil. Did you know, and I'm going to let Bruce say the tip, but did you know, this is the point behind the tip, that every liquid fat has 120 calories per tablespoon, no matter what liquid fat you use. So what's the tip? The tip is use fragrant, flavorful oil. Stop Uh, using flavorless oil. That's the problem. Stop using oil that has no taste. So instead of canola oil, use a fragrant olive oil. Use a toasty walnut oil. Use a dark and rich pumpkin seed oil. Or even shift over, the calories aren't exactly the same, to butter. You can use this. And the reason we say this, it's just because what we just came out of. Because these are big flavors that bring on better satiety. Flavorless oils don't bring on any satiety. So if you're going to spend 120 calories, spend it well. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Denise Mickelson, a professional foodie, someone who eats for a living. All right, Bruce, take it away. Today, I'm talking to Denise Mickelson. She is what I absolutely call a professional foodie and has been a professional eater for her entire career. Um, She's been a chef at some of New York City's best restaurants. She's been the food editor 
at Fine Cooking Magazine. She has been in charge of the food content online cooking school Craftsy. She's been the food editor of 5280 Denver's premier magazine where she got to feature the best food the city had to offer. And now Denise helps all of the Colorado restaurants through the Colorado Restaurant Association share their incredible menus and delicious offerings with anyone who is interested and wants to go. And Denise, I love what I do, but I want your career. (laughs) My career has been very um, strange and circular and um, not a direct line from one point to another, but it, it has all worked out in the end. And it's all been about food. And earlier in this episode, Mark and I had a conversation about being professional foodies and being professional eaters and how difficult that can be on you physically. So as a professional foodie whose job it was to eat a lot, um, how did you manage that? How did you balance doing your job and being having to having to eat so much. I know. I have eaten many people's lifetimes worth of calories over the last 20 some years, no question. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned um, how I worked at Fine Cooking. So when I moved, I left New York City where I had been working at Martha Stewart Living and I was a food editor in her test kitchen. So I was creating recipes and food styling for her photo shoots. And I actually moved out of the test kitchen, which was a goal in, onto the editorial story side of things. And so I get to find cooking and every day, just about every weekday there at three o'clock, we would all leave the office and go over to this little side building on the campus in Newtown, Connecticut, and we would have a tasting and it could be two recipes. It could be 10 recipes. Sometimes it was a whole Thanksgiving spread. And, and we used to laugh about the fine cooking 15, because if you ate as much as you wanted of every delicious thing there, you would pack on some serious poundage. But you didn't. You managed you managed to keep a pretty spelt figure figure through most of it. <laughs> well uh, the point is health, right? The point is health and not having to buy new pants <laughs> all the time because that's just not something I've ever wanted to do. Um, so well what I learned was you take a bite or two. Usually the first bite you know gives you your initial reaction and then your second bite, you know, you can kind of play around a little bit more. You can really kind of assess the texture and consistency and flavor of things, but, but that's it. You really can only have two bites of each thing because if you eat a full piece of pie and a full Thanksgiving dinner at three, and then you go home and have dinner with your family later, like it ends up, you know, going in the wrong direction. So for the last 20 years, I have, I have learned to taste food and not always eat everything on my plate. You're talking about food as a job here. How do I do it as a job? I mean, most people think, oh, you're bringing me a big plate of pasta. I'm going to eat that whole thing. But if your job is to to review it, to describe it, to share with people, you don't need to eat the whole thing to do that. You don't. You don't. And actually what you develop over time or what I was able to develop over time is with the help of my iPhone, right? And making sure I get a photo of every dish so that I can have that visual trigger and cue when I look back on a meal you develop a, a taste memory and a, and a kind of sense memory and you can have two bites of that thing. I mean, and that was in a test kitchen setting, you have two bites and then you remember what it tasted like, what it smelled like, what the you know texture of every bit of it was like um, and the photos help. Um, and then, you know, when I moved into 
being more of a food editor for a magazine, so at 5280 in Denver, where I live, that became similar. I would eat more than two bites of an appetizer that I ordered, for instance, but I would share with people at my table. I definitely brought home endless doggy bags to my family. And again, those pictures on my phone, plus that taste memory kind of being refined over years, you remember what the food was like. I think someone needs to make a rom-com about your life because, I mean, you met your husband in the kitchen at Blue Hill Restaurant in New York. Right. And it's sort of Disney meets food. I mean, you weren't a princess and he wasn't Prince Charming, but... But I was the intern and he was the sous chef, so... (laughs) But you guys were a great couple. So he's a chef, you're a chef, Mm -hmm. then you got into all this food and you have an 11 year old. I do. Big question is, how has your being a food professional and a food person affected your son's eating and his palate? Oh, that is a great question. My son has an amazing palate, I think for an 11 year old, but given that his parents are so into food, of course, it's, it's never quite enough, right? He, We want him to eat even more than he already does. But what we have done is we've created a bit of a monster because now he's obsessed with sushi. And so we're going broke because literally all he wants to eat is sushi. He's a a Japanophile. He loves takoyaki and udon and ramen. And and really, I think one of our first big, big trips is going to have to be Japan. We used to think Italy. I want to come with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, I want to come. You can. Of course you can. Yeah. He's very, he's got a great palate. We need to, we need to move into some of the spicier Southeastern Asian cuisines and, and um, India. We want to, we want to kind of branch him out to those. But in general, he's just been a great eater. We have not made separate meals. I mean, when I was growing up, there was one meal on the table for dinner that my mother made and you ate it or you didn't. And we do the same thing. So we make sure there's always something that he'll like and eat, but eats what we eat. I know when I'm working on a cookbook for six months, I get really tired of eating the same food mm-hmm. and it's just, it gets, do you find that to be a problem in what you do? I've had the luxury and the privilege in the last, you know, five or six years anyway, as food editor at the magazine I was at to be able to kind of chart my own path. You know, I was reporting on all the best food in Colorado. Um, so I could go where I wanted and, and kind of eat what I wanted in a way in terms of, you know, which restaurants I went to, I, I, for the most part could pick what I didn't get to pick was I couldn't just go and have a salad. I mean, that's just not a thing. If you're a food editor, you have to go and you have to eat, you know, across the menu, you've got to get cocktails and you've got to get, you know, appetizers and entrees and desserts. And that certainly became physically, literally tiring. I like that there's a plural on that. You had to get cocktails (laughs) and desserts (laughs) and appetizers. But as you said at the beginning of this interview, you only have to have a bite or two to understand the dish, to be able to explain it. But to be honest, if you're ordering eight things at a table, Mm -hmm. even a couple of bites of eight things adds up to a lot of food. Completely. And you, and you go with people, right? I mean, there are very few meals that I was able to do alone because you just couldn't order enough food and taste enough food to get a real sense of a place. Um, Luckily my, again, my husband, Bill is an amazing food partner. Um, And so when we go out, we can put away a a shocking amount, you know, (laughs) Um, and, and go and, you know, bringing friends along and all that. So that is all very helpful. And everybody knows if they go out to eat with me, you know, I hate it when we order the same thing and, 
and we all have to share bites and all that. So actually the pandemic made that a little trickier, but the pandemic made everything tricky. So, so how, as a food uh, reviewer, how did you handle that? How did, so with that, with restaurants not being open to the public, you can't go in. How were you able to do your job? Yeah, we, well, I mean, I used to do this 25 best restaurant list and we were not able to do that because it was really looking at restaurants as a whole. So not just the food, but also the service and the environment and the vibe and the, you know, all of it. So since you couldn't eat in and it seemed like an awfully harsh time to be, you know, overly critiquing any restaurant anyway, we did a bunch of different things. You know, we did best takeout, you know, we kind of made up a bunch of funny awards, right? Like best takeout and best this and best that, um, that all worked for dining at home. And then I did a bunch of stories about, um, you know, all the kind of packaged things. A lot of restaurants pivoted and became produce markets or wine shops or created these, you know, freezer meals um, that you could, you know, cook at your house. And we tried to meet our readers where they were at, which for a long time was at home. So we, we talked about how you could support restaurants from the comfort of your own kitchen. What's the most number of meals you've ever had to eat in one day? Oh my God, five, six. <laughs> <laughs> the most dinners in one right. day. I really tried hard. I tried so hard to spread my dining out when I knew I had a big story coming up um, so that I wouldn't have to eat more than one dinner a night, actually, because I don't think that's fair. Even if you're really pacing yourself on that first meal, you don't want another dinner. And so that second restaurant is at a disadvantage from the get-go. It's really hard. So I've tried very hard not to do that. But there were times when I had to swing by a bakery on my way to the office, and then I had a lunch meeting, and then I had to go taste something else. Nobody would believe it, but that is part of the reason I left the food writing world and moved over to doing more marketing and communications for the Restaurant Association here in Colorado because, because I'm 45 years old and literally looking forward down the line five, 10 years part of the reasoning, a small part, was that I just didn't literally know how I could ingest that much food forevermore. It, it, it didn't seem like a long-term, you know, plan. All right, before we talk about the differences between these two parts of your career, Ruth Rachel always had this thing about disguising herself mm -hmm. when she would write for the review for the times did you ever find that was necessary or is that anything did you try to be anonymous when you would go to review restaurants i did i tried to so i would i used my high school girlfriend's names and i had fake gmails um under their names that i would make reservations under and all that but honestly that was that was kind of in the beginning and Denver, you know, Colorado is not that big a place in terms of the restaurant community. I think you can get away with that in New York, like Ruth did for sure. But and I, I even heard that she was given different credit cards, you know, under different names. So for me, even yes. if I made a, a reservation under a fake name, I would get there and I'd sit down. And within a few minutes, people were like, um, hi, Denise, why would you do that? You know, like <laughs> that's kind of and honestly, I think the anonymity thing is kind of silly because they're not, they can pay more attention to your food. They can certainly pay more attention to your service, but they're not changing the menu, you know, when you walk in the door or when they know you're coming. Um, and it's not, I don't know. I get it. I get that then you have more of an experience like everybody else. But um, after a while, it just seemed absurd to be tr tricking these people that I actually know and, you know, work with regularly um and talk to regularly to then be trying to sneak into their restaurants it, it just barely worked and now with your position with um the colorado restaurant board 
you're also trying to tell people where to go, but from a different perspective. Now you're kind of working for the restaurants and helping people understand what their experience is going to be slightly from a different from a different angle. How has that changed your restaurant going experience? My job is so completely different now. So what's lovely is when I go to a restaurant, A, I can just enjoy it and I can order as much or as little food as I would like and I can just eat it and act like a regular restaurant goer, which is very freeing and delightful. Um, And I also get to have different kinds of conversations with restaurant owners and workers now, whereas before everyone was always a little hesitant because I was a journalist and could write, you know, for an out, a public outlet, what they had to say or share things they maybe didn't want me to share. Um, now, you know, every conversation is, is off the record and, and I'm just really there to help them in any way I can and help their businesses succeed. So it has really freed me up in many ways, physically and otherwise. Do you find that the chefs now, cause they, they knew who you were and they would send you food all the time. Of mm-hmm. course, when you were there doing a review, mm-hmm. are they still doing it? Do they still send you food? If I'm, if I'm at a restaurant and, and I know the people behind it, yeah, now they send me food. What's, but what's great about now is that before I didn't want to take anything for free because I didn't want to be beholden to anyone. Nobody could say, well, I, I, you know, you took that meal. How could you say something bad about us? Or, or more likely, how could you not write about us? And, you know, if I didn't take anything for free, then nobody could make me do anything. Now, because I don't write anymore, people can send me free food and I can accept it. And it feels very special. <laughs> and, I, and do you still hold to that just two bites? Uh, no, I don't have to anymore. Because if I ordered the correct size meal that I wanted, I can, you know, and a little extra comes. It's okay. No, I, I eat out a lot less. I still eat out at restaurants pretty often, but it's much, much less than when I was fully doing that for a living. Now I'm, you know, learning about the politics of restaurants and the business side of restaurants, and it's very different. You know what else Ruth Reichel, one, I read, she said once that if you're afraid to do something, then you have to do it. And ever since I read that, that's what I have tried to live by. So I was very afraid to leave my food writer job. It was a sweet gig and I was good at it and I was comfortable in it, but I was, and I was afraid to, to make a jump, but she said I had to. So I did. You're still a professional foodie. You're just doing the business end. you're just dealing with restaurants now from the business and the practical side of it, which will be probably beneficial to your cholesterol level and your blood sugar level. <laughs> All of that. Still get to enjoy food. I still think you had an amazing journey on this career, which is not anywhere near over. You're young. You're not retiring anytime soon. I think it's fascinating what you've done from food, from chef school to working in restaurants, to writing about food, tasting it, reviewing it, and now dealing with the business end of it. I still get to help restaurants. That's what means the most to me in in a very different way. But yeah. I love restaurants. Restaurant people are the best. Food people are the best. You know that. I agree with that. Hey, thanks for sharing uh, your experience and what it's like to be a professional foodie with us on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And we'll touch base again. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Bruce. That was a great interview. (laughs) We love Denise. All right. So what's up for our final segment? Segment four, as always, what is making us happy this week in food? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. What's making me happy this week in food is vegan ice cream. And before you scream at me, 
So earlier, I'm already screaming at earlier you. in this episode, we talked about the ice cream I got Mark while he was away and that he had to throw out because he was stress eating it. Well, this is Canton Valley Creamery in Canton, Connecticut, and they make amazing ice cream, but they now make vegan ice cream. And here's why I love it. Most vegan ice cream that I get at the supermarket is either coconut milk base or almond milk base. No, let me, let me rephrase that for you. Most that you get is icy, <laughs> icy, yeah. hard icy and also they taste like coconut or they taste like like almond and i don't want that to be fair and honest i don't know what canton valley cream is using as their base because they don't have an ingredient list mm. on their ice cream T- tasteless oils but no their ice their vegan ice cream is creamy and rich and soft and tastes like what it's supposed to taste like the chocolate tastes rich and chocolatey like a chocolate mousse the toasted coconut tastes yummy and tropical. You know so there, that's what's making me You happy. know, there are two kinds of people out there. There are skimmers and non-skimmers. Do you know the difference? Because well, skimmer is somebody who gets the ice cream home, and the first thing they do is take the lid off and skim the edge where it's soft, and other people are less pleasurable and just stick it in the <laughs> freezer. I am definitely a skimmer the minute I get the ice cream home. And do you sit down at your desk with skimming No, I don't. I open the container, and I run my spoon around the outer edge where it's softest. Oh, my gosh. That's the best. Okay. What's making me happy in food this week is corn. Where we live in New England, corn Mm. is in. It's in the farmer's market. And now I'm going to confess something to you. Are you ready? Get ready. Brace yourself, especially if you're a North American listener. I don't like corn. (laughs) I really don't. I don't get it. I liked it as a kid. I loved corn because it was a sugar butter festival. Well, last night we had corn. And what I said to Mark when he said I liked it as a kid was, yeah, when I was a kid, I didn't have dental issues with corn. (laughs) Well, okay. I don't really care about the dental (laughs) issues, but um, I don't really like it. In other words, I don't just freak out over it. However, where we live in New England, corn season is very short. It's only a few weeks long really when the corn comes in it's not this prolonged corn where you get it all summer long it comes into the farmers markets for just a few weeks and when it does come in it is pretty fabulous and so hmm, we are in corn season and even though i am not the greatest fan of corn it does taste good right now so if corn is in where you are check it out especially at farmers markets so that's it this week on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Please subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a comment, like, share this podcast with your friends. The more people know about us, the better. And don't forget our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And come back next week. We got more episodes, more segments, everything coming up, more interviews, more excitement, more thrills, more chills, the whole thing. Hey, join us again on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.